Oh, and thank you for having a watch or a listen to Secure Insights with NDK Cyber. Now, this week I'm joined by Peter Shawaka. Peter is somebody that's been a, uh, a very highly experienced practitioner in the world of cybersecurity, both from a hands-on perspective and also from a running a more business-orientated security division for some of the biggest brands in the security space. More recently, uh, Peter has turned his hand to a more consulting uh, around VC, so MDR, but also staffing and really making the most of those developing nations around the world and maybe looking for staffing in uh, countries and, uh, and regions where we wouldn't maybe traditionally look and he's having great success in this and uh, a lot of his clients and customers are very pleased with the uh, the results so I think for me, if you're somebody listening to this episode in particular, and somebody who's looking at potential other sources of staffing and other avenues from the more developing world, then I think this could be a great lesson for you. There's an awful lot of information and uh, and little uh, tricks and tips along the way, so hopefully you enjoy. Cool. Well, Peter, thank you, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate you uh, you jumping on and and uh, sharing your your story. Uh, so, for the listeners, can you give a I guess a brief intro and background of yourself? I know you've got quite an interesting journey. Yeah, I'm uh, these days I'm CEO and co-founder of a company called Nearshore Cyber. We're based in um, a town about a six-hour drive south of Mexico City. Uh, it's called Oaxaca, uh, but I'm not from here. I'm originally from the East Coast of the United States and lived all over. Uh, about 25 years in cyber, about 28 in IT. Um, most of my career um, has been in SOC, MDR, things like that. So we do a lot of consulting around MDR, consulting for MSSPs, uh, and then building out teams for them. And the, they sort of go together. Cool. Nice. And so you, you touched on a few points there. And so you, your background, and for anyone who wants to jump on your LinkedIn page, it's it's a wash with all the all the top logos in the space, all the brands that we all recognize. Um, so do you want to talk us through sort of your, your journey there and sort of how then the, the Nearshore Cyber journey came to be? How that all unfolded? Yeah, I mean, I, I I did a lot of pre-sales for 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 many years. So I would I would get like a meeting or a, a few meetings with lots of different companies, mm. and then have like regular touch points with with some some key ones. So I got to see the inside of a lot of different companies um, around the world. Um, so having having that exposure taught me a lot about how different kinds of businesses did security, and frankly, like I studied at the feet of the masters. I studied, I, you know, I, I, I kind of mentored under amazing salespeople, technical people, business people. Uh, so I've been, I've been extremely fortunate to have that, that kind of exposure and that kind of support. Nice. Cool. And so when did the, the whole sort of transition come to be from, from that world to, to nearshore cyber and running your own shop, to, to, so to speak? So I, this is like third go around with Mexico. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I was at, um, I spent about five years at Optiv, um, mm. learned a ton there. I ran, ran the SIM practice, I actually built it from, from eight to almost 50 people in about two and a half years. I spent five years there. I got to do some M and A. Um, I really had carte blanche to do pretty much anything. Mm. Um, and I did, and I ran a lot of experiments. And so, um, at one point, um, I had lived in Mexico once for, not quite a year, but and I went to Denver and I was I was um I was uh told I couldn't work in the office anymore. I wasn't a VP and only VPs had offices. So they were like, go go work in a cubicle. I'm like, nobody wants to work near me. I'm too loud. And they're like, well, we'll work from home. 
I said, well, I don't, I don't want to, I don't like working from home. I want to work here. And they're like, well, work wherever you want. And I got them to put it in writing. Okay. And so I moved to Mexico city. Um, it's for six months. Nobody, I know nobody knew I was here. And so one of the things that taught me was it didn't matter where I was. Mm. Um, airports were good from Mexico city to Denver and to New York and Los Angeles and to London. Like it was an easy flight. It wasn't that expensive either. And the infrastructure was excellent. Um, in fact, before this, I live in Brooklyn, uh, and uh, my internet access is more stable here than it was in New York City. Really, <laughs> uh, and so a lot of the time, people don't—they wouldn't know where I am um, unless I told them. So I realized that that the kind of radical telecommuting thing could work, mm-hmm. and nobody really cared. Um, eventually, thanks to COVID, I moved from New York to Oaxaca, really because of the art and the food, which is why most people live here. Mm-hmm. Met a Oaxacana like a couple weeks in. I wound up marrying her and she became my business partner. So uh, Nurture Cyber actually has two entities. One's in the States, an LLC, and then we have a corporation here. Cool. She's the CEO of this one. I'm the CEO of that one. Um, um, the reason I started it was about a year and a half ago, I got tired of toxic work cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, I had gone from like bad company to bad company. And... Um, I decided that like if I was going to work for another toxic company, it was going to be my fault. I was just tired of, of being in a position where I had to blame my boss or my leadership. I'm like, I, I, I have to take charge of this. Mm-hmm. I had put off starting a company here for a lot of years. I sort of pondered the idea, but like my Spanish is terrible. I've been at it for like 13 years. It's still really bad. And marrying a, a Oaxacana, uh, who speaks good English just was, wasn't helping. Um, but it dawned on me that if you do cyber and if you're going to you probably speak English, so I started to research the market. And I found that plenty of people speak English in the cybersecurity uh, labor market, uh, probably about half. About a, you know, of that, another a half of those people speak English so well, you'd hardly know it that they weren't here. And so that comes about because of a lot of business process outsourcing. Uh, not to mention, you know, not to mention cyber. Um, so it started to look feasible. Mm. Um, um, my f- my uh, uh, first attempt at, attempt at winning business was through the old, you know, friends and family route. Mm. Um, and I realized that um, I had a natural market um, in the form of secure operations, D- DFIR. Um, later, I figured out that IAM was 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 a good uh, market for us. And uh, things just started to come together. So we have we have three lines of business. One is consulting for managed security services providers and MSS and, and MSPs that want to build MDR practices. Sure. Um, we also do some virtual CISO because the leadership a lot of time is what's missing. And then the staffing and recruiting came along with that. So we build the SOC or the MDR, we staff it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're not exclusively uh, a recruiting and staffing firm. We're we're more of a, a niche security services company that happens to um, have something special. And that's in the form of like, we're the only people who do this in Mexico. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. And so I was going to ask you, what came first? Was it the the need for the staffing and the, and the offshoring, so to speak? Was it the the VC so stuff? Was it the, the consulting around MDR? Or was it just like a a mixed array of things that's coming in and you went, yeah, that's cool. Let's get hold of it. And it sort of morphed into what it is today. I, uh, I like tilting at windmills. I like lost causes. And everybody said that the, the security staffing problem was 
really insoluble. I mean, you're not going to fix it by jamming a lot of new faces in, into the business. Um, that's that's just not feasible. Um, and I I um, I wanted to do something for Mexico. Like I'm, uh, I was adopted by this country. I'm a permanent resident, um, but um, I I wanted to give something back, and I wanted to kind of earn my place here. Mm. So I thought, well, I got two problems. Right, I've got one on one on the north of the border, which is we can't find enough sal- cyber talent. We can't find the right kind of cyber talent because it's it is true that there's a, there's a talent shortage. So it's not everywhere. It's it's it, there. It's it's lumpy. Um, and on this side of the border, there are people who should just be paid more and who need access to opportunities. Who are really smart and have certain talents and attitudes that you don't find anywhere else in the world. Um, and so. It was kind of both. Um, now, I, I have a history with recruiters and recruiting that goes back to really my optic days. Like about half that practice uh, I was was brought to me by external recruiters, just a, a handful of them. Uh, and I'll name one of them, Tom Shaw, who's one of my heroes and he's a friend. Okay, just fantastic, right? Uh, I think he's over at CDW these days. He got acquired. Um, and there are, there are a couple of others that, really understood my business mm-hmm. and um, would pipeline for me when I wasn't asking for something, who would who would keep an eye out the, on the market for the benefit of my practice. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I didn't do any of, my, any of my own recruiting. I had time. I was running the business. I was trying to trying to build revenue and train people and all that stuff. And I I got used to a really high level of service from true experts. I even, I, I, there was, uh, an independent recruiter who I gave a start to, I helped her, like I helped her write her first invoice to me. Nice. Um, and so I've always had a certain appreciation for great recruiters. Mm-hmm. I also, you know, I would, I would fight to use them. You know, my internal recruiters hated it. They were, they were, yeah, there were, there were knife fights. And one of the things that I learned was, uh, when, when I decided to start doing this was, I mean, one, I knew it was going to be hard. Mm. People think the barriers to entry in this business are low. They're not. They're brutal. Mm. Um, and it's very hard work. Uh, a lot of it is about like data and organizing it and workflows. And ugh, it's so hard, right, to keep up. You know, we, we track 2,900 people across Mexico, Philippines, Greece, and Turkey. And that's our, it's kind of our patch. Mm. Um, and even just that slice of the world is, incredibly difficult um but um you know when when i started this i knew that um i wanted to i wanted to be like my heroes i wanted to be like them and i wanted to give the kind of service that had been given to me and i'm trying to figure it out right i still don't consider myself a recruiter i'm still i'm still haven't reached the that level of expertise um but we're getting there yeah, but 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 there's there's a sweet spot here that's working, and uh, and you mentioned all the the offshoring and the power of outsourcing or hiring from those developing nations. So uh, I guess if we jump straight into that area, you mentioned a few of the countries you play in there. What's the what's the screaming pros coming out of doing something like this for maybe one of your clients that you're you're hiring for? Yeah, well, for Mexico, it's mainly it's mainly time zones, language, and culture. The there's certainly labor arbitrage to be had uh, in these regions. It is cheaper uh, by usually about like thirty to seventy percent, depending on language. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there's no difference. Like you know, there are there are some roles that are 
you pay the same here as you would in the States because they're just rare enough and in, in such high demand. Uh, but usually there's there's a significant cost differential. Um, uh, the uh, Philippines is considerably cheaper, but not as cheap as India. Um, what I like about Philippines is customer service. Best customer service in the world at any price. And the time zone differential between the United States and Philippines is much less painful than India. Um, there's a lot to like about India, but you got you have to do scale, right? Um, like unless you're going to have a hundred people such that you could justify having managers there that you trust and like if you're, unless you're willing to like go there once a quarter and suffer the journey mm-hmm. and lose a week or two, um, it's not worth doing. Mm-hmm. Philippines is a lot easier. There is plenty of infrastructure um, that you can bring to bear to employ people legally. Uh, which is a major problem in these places. Um, and so it, it it becomes feasible and there's plenty of tech skill there. Um, mm. And people are just, they're just, they're a pleasure to work with. I love Filipinos. Um, Greece and Turkey, we do for GDPR. Yeah, uh, sure. the, the caliber of cyber talent in Greece is very high. Uh, mm. People are very professional, very poised. Uh, there aren't enough of them. So I had to pivot over to Greece, uh, over to Turkey, which is like just barely in GDPR territory. Um, costs are a lot lower, um, in large part um, thanks to the instability of the Turkish lira. Everybody wants dollars and euros, and um, and there are a lot of people because you know there's a large population of cybersecurity um, talent there, and um, um, infrastructure is not quite as stable, but it's it's good enough. It's good enough to get you on. Okay. And so if I'm a company, say I'm in uh, I'm in the US, I'm a CISO, is this whole operation geared up to then that if you're if you're struggling to find the right talent for whatever you're paying or whatever it might be, we can do that for you, but we'll hire from Philippines, Greece, Turkey, Mexico to substitute what you might not be getting in the States. Is that the whole idea of this? There, there's, there are three reasons that people come to us. The first is that we are really good at vetting talent for what we do. Like we're, we're very disciplined about our niche. Um, Somebody came to us early on, actually a mentor of mine and was like, I love what you're doing. I got a JD Edwards thing for you. And I'm like, I don't have any JD Edwards people. He's like, that's okay. I got them for you. You're just going to pass the paper. I'm like, I'm not taking it. Okay. Why that? I'm like, cause if it goes sideways, I cannot help you. Yes. I don't, I don't, you know, I, and so anyone before any, any, um, candidate gets one of my clients. They've gone through four hours of vetting first. Wow! Uh, that's what that's what people did for me. Like mm-hmm. I did not get I did not get dud clients. I get I very very rarely got um, interviews that weren't at least good. Mm-hmm. And so far, our our reject rate is basically is like zero. Uh, and it's you know people get rejected only because somebody they, the client likes somebody better than somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, we're pretty proud of that. I'm too small and too proud to have too many screw ups. Mm. Um, and so we do a lot of quality control. So the first thing is people come to me because they know I, that we know security. Um, and we have, we have a system that, that focuses on quality. Mm. Uh, the other reason is, of course, um, the, um, is a cost differential, is, is labor arbitrage. Um, Time zones become a major factor. Like Philippines is like the easiest way to get up um, 24-7 or Eastern Europe. We can cover the whole planet and we don't have to do India to do it. But the other is like people are, are, are 
so tired of seeing the same resumes over and over again, the same candidates over and over again. So these are fresh markets mm. uh, for for American hiring managers and um, NHR. Um, and you know the, the market here is is as tight as anywhere. Uh, Mexico has not had had layoffs yet; it's coming. Mm. Uh, but uh, the 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 IT uh, the IT labor market has been kept going because Mexico has overtaken China as number one trading partner, and so the 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 general trend toward nearshoring to Mexico has brought with us more IT business, more IT demand. Now, is that going to keep up? Never does, right? Um, but the point is that we have access to a different talent pool. Um, and the other thing is, like, once people start, once Americans uh, 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 and, and people on on your side of the Atlantic start, you are on the other side of the Atlantic, right? Yeah, we're on. Yeah, we're, well, I'm I'm in London. You just outside London. Yes. Uh, oh, okay. All y'all. Um, <laughs> once people start to to get to know uh, Mexican. Uh, IT workers and Filipino um, IT workers, what they find is that there is a kind of adaptability and ability to invent and think creatively that doesn't come right away. These are very hierarchical societies, right? I mean, great thing about Mexico and the Philippines is, you know, they they have a shared history with Spain and with the Catholic Church. They tend to be very hierarchical. Mm -hmm. Once you start to build up trust with with the employees, um, you find that like they become they can be, become very creative, very inventive because they're used to getting by with not much. Mm -hmm. uh, they're used to adversity. They're used to different kinds of stress and different kinds of challenges that you get in the United States, UK, and Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a at the heart of what we do is DEI is diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm -hmm. And an appreciation for the different strengths and strengths and talents that people bring from places like this that others just don't see, unless you're working with with folks from these regions. Yeah, I think that's one of the sort of the, the points I wanted to sort of ask you around. Really, was just from working in the industry ten years or so, I, I can see there being a little bit of pushback or friction when saying, "Look, okay, I know the headcount is due to be in X location in the U.S., but could we look at developing regions?" And I, I can see for whatever, a, a, a number of reasons or one, one or two specific reasons of I'm not sure, can we, can we sort of trust that? Will it work? Not, you know, not hundred percent. So you, you must get a bit of pushback from, from that sort of thing. No? Well, when I do, I walk away. Like, mm. I, I mean, I'm, I'm tiny. I don't need it. I don't need to place a thousand people a year. Um, again, we focus on quality, not just on the candidate side, but in the client relationships. Mm. Like if I, you know, with my, with my clients, either I'm a partner and we can have like uh, a relationship that is based on trust and building business together or with like, or we just don't and it's okay. Right. Um, um, our uh, ICP is a company that has tried India that has tried Eastern Europe and failed a uh, company that already does business in Latin America and Philippines um, or, and, and Southern Europe. Uh, because there's already appreciation for uh, our willingness to deal with people who are not within the bounds of the uh, say the United States. Um, um, and so it's it's generally th there isn't much of a sell of of much selling to be done in terms of like why you should should near shore offshore. It's more a matter of like how do we do it safely? One yeah. thing for sure is like you don't DIY this. <laughs> 
<laughs> like don't, don't don't think you're going to stand up at a corporation in like Mexico and go for <laughs> it. Um, it took us five months just to get incorporated. It took us six weeks just to get a bank account. Wow. And uh, and we had to form two corporations to do this so that people could pay us in dollars and we do transfers. But you know, my my partner uh, Laura, she's either at the bank or government office of some kind dealing with some tax or labor thing literally every day. Wow. Um, Philippines, we work through we work through uh, an EOR employer record partner that handles that for us. They have a much more mature um, uh, uh, sort of foreign labor infrastructure. We are planning on like going there though, but we're going to spend like three months in Manila mm-hmm. to make it happen. In the meantime, we just pay, we just lose margin and that's all right. But um, uh, for sure, you don't do it yourself. Um, you've got to have somebody you trust on the ground. And that's, you know, for us, that's, that's most of the deal. Mm-hmm. You also have to understand um, you have to under, have an understanding of the people in that market better than you might in the United States. I mean, Americans are used to being transactional. Everybody knows that they're like a piece on the chessboard and nobody likes it, but that's, that's a reality that everyone's accepted. Um, the um, people here are used to, and, and most emerging markets are, are accustomed to being abused. They're tr- accustomed to being um, uh, treated as kind of, not quite human, especially by foreigners. Mm. What we realized pretty quickly was that um, if you treat people like people, they, um, uh, they're they much easier to work with. They're a pleasure to work with. They really appreciate it. And so we, we spent a lot of time getting to know people. My partner, part of her job is like weddings and christenings. Like that's what you got to do. Mm. Um, for not, another thing is like contracts are not really enforceable in court easily. I mean, we can get sued. But, you know, getting stuff done through the course is, it's not going to happen unless you're willing to, you know, pay a more detail. And we don't do that. We're legal. Mm-hmm. Um, what you can do is get to know people's families and um, and build friendships. So now for me, that's perfect because I'm not a recruiter, <laughs> really. I'm still faking it. What I What I do instead is like, you know, everybody says, you know, yeah, you start with friends and family, but what happens when you run out? Well, there is a way around that. And that's just keep making friends. And we do that. So we create, um, we spend about half of our time on a community projects. So we, we run, um, uh, insert resta- response, tabletops as a game. So every week we do one in English or Spanish alternating weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, every other week we, uh, I spend my Friday night, uh, running games for the Philippines, which means it's their Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon. Um, we also have a, we created a Linux user group where we invite people in to the regular business. So we have a, we have a weekly meeting on Saturdays, but every morning from 8.30 to 9.30, we invite anybody who wants to join to work with us on R&D. Because I have a couple of interns that pretty much just do R&D all the time. And so I join that meeting and we get to do work together. And so because it's free and I insist on never charging any, anybody for any of it. Um, and we're quite clear about the fact that this is our marketing, right? We don't, we don't, I spent almost nothing on marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just sp- instead spent it on things like equipment and promoting the games and the Linux user group. And sometimes I buy like training vouchers for people and give them away mm-hmm. because of that. People come to understand, like, we're here to support the community. Mm-hmm. So we feed the community, feed the community, feed the community. And then, and the community feeds us back. And that's how we want to be. Um, 
we have the advantage of being self-funded. Uh, we have the advantage of knowing that our goal is not to exit in five years by selling the PE or something like that. Yeah. Um, this is a long-term project where our, in our, our intention is to create um, a kind of social economic justice by creating understanding be between people in the so-called first world and the so-called third world. Mm. And th the way that happens is by having common projects, by people working together. And in fact, the Linux user group, like it's, we officially call it the Nearshore Cyber Oaxaca Linux user group. There are only three Oaxaca, there are only three Oaxacanos so far because we haven't opened up the, the space yet. We've, we're building a hacker space. And I just haven't, I don't have a table yet to, to put all the stuff on. <laughs> um, so we do it remotely and, and our most active members, they're not here. They're in like Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Wow. And Dubai and yes, in Mexico, other parts of Mexico and the United States, um, uh, in the Philippines. And so what we're doing is, is creating an awareness of kind of international approach mm -hmm. to this common problem, which is how do you get experience without a job? Mm -hmm. Right. This is where I send my rejects, if you will. And if you're one of those rejects, I apologize for putting it in those terms if you're mm -hmm. listening to this. But the point is that most of the people I talk to aren't qualified to do the work. A lot of the people I talk to aren't really interested in cyber. Mm -hmm. They just want to, they just want a better paycheck. And they heard from their like cousin or something who might work in the business, you should be in cyber. Well, it's not necessarily so. Um, so what do you do with those people? Just say like, thanks, we'll get back to you and lie about it? No. Um, when I interview somebody, I give them direct feedback. Hmm. Um, you know, I give them my opinion and people will say, well, that's legally perilous. Like, no, it's not. It's my opinion. <laughs> it's just my opinion. I'm not licensed for this. None of us are. Right. <laughs> and so my, my opinion is my opinion. It's mine and I can give it to whoever I want. And it's honest. Um, so if, if I say like, you're not going to get this job, I can also say, well, uh, we're happy to work with you. We've got this community and you're, we would love to see you join. And if they come to the games and they come to the log, great. Yeah. I will invest in those people. And if they don't, fine. I gave them a shot, right? Um, a lot of people want a career handed to them and they want to follow the conventional advice, which is get the certification, get that job. And it just doesn't work that way. Um, so yeah, we're we're different in a few ways. No, that's cool. I think that's awesome what you're doing there with the whole community building. And I think there's so much to be said for, yes, there is the conventional route that works of, I don't know, schooling, college degree, into job, internship, and then rise through the rank type thing. But there is so much, especially if you're maybe transferring over from a traditional IT role into more of a security. And that's a core interest of yours to do things like these communities you're putting up here to do thing, even just free YouTube sessions out there at a, at a very basic level, an hour a week or so, you can then learn from that, put that on the resume and that becomes then part of your experience, which will then lead mm -hmm. into other areas as well. You know, So it doesn't yeah. have to be paid certifications, like you say, it can be the community piece. Right. Well, and you have to build stuff. You have to, you have to think like a hacker. In in the classic sense, um, there are two books that I recommend to everyone who comes through here. One is Bruce Schneier's A Hacker's Mind, which is which takes on some of the sort of political implications of hacker thinking. Um, the other is uh, Cliff Stoll's book, The Cuckoo's Egg, which is about a case in the mid 80s 
where I'm not going to give away the plot, but but he wound up inventing intrusion detection techniques. Okay. He wasn't a security guy. He still really isn't. He makes Klein bottles now. You can buy them from his website. Um, he's really cool. Yeah. yeah, he's one of my he's one of my favorite people. Um, I actually bought a couple from him years ago, and he took like a selfie with them and drew all over the box. He's like such a great weirdo. Um, <laughs> but in, in his book, he describes the whole process by which he found out what happened and what what he did about it. And the point, the reason I signed the book, I signed the book for two reasons. One, you can get really cheap on Amazon. I used to buy them for like three bucks and give them away. Um, but if you read Cliff's story and you feel like, ah, I'm like Cliff, I get it. I'm excited by this. Cool. You're one of us. And if you read it or you can't get through it and you're like, what is this junk? Right. Um, you're not one of us. And that's all right because cyber needs better IT. Cyber needs better run businesses. Mm. Um, the lack of things like what we see in the CIO organization, like enterprise architects, um, financial analysts, project managers, like we don't have those in, C in, in this under the CISO. We need those people. We need better cooperation between IT and, and security and also the business as well. Um, and so if somebody comes through here and they realize I'm not actually a cybersecurity thinker, I don't have the, the hacker uh, attitude, you're still welcome to the log, to the Linux user group, because most of what we do there is IT. We learn Linux, we learn networking, we learn architecture. We're building a CMDB right now. Like one of the things that shows up in so many security projects is a gap is nobody can find anything. Nobody knows who it belongs to. Nobody knows what it's for. Um, and inevitably somebody says, where's the CMDB, the configuration management database or IT asset management system? Well, I have now a collection of people who can say, not only have they worked with one, they built one, and they can take the documentation that they wrote to build it and the diagrams of the environment and the site-to-site -site VPNs to Dubai and Pachuca, which is where the other labs are that we're connecting to, and put it online. You do that at your day job, and you're lucky if you just get sued. But we're inviting people to not just say, I worked on this, but actually provide evidence of it. Mm. And I don't, I don't know if that's ever been done before, but it's it's also a hell of a lot of fun. Mm. Um, you know, for me, there are days when I'm just like, God, I just, I just want to go get a job. <laughs> I'm sick of this. <laughs> right. And um, and then my 830 thing comes around and we jump on our little Discord video channel. Yeah. And I get to see people's eyes light up and the lights turn on. And uh and that keeps me going. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's a hugely rewarding giving back and it does make a difference. And I think if people are in that boat of we've spoken about this briefly here, but I want to get into cybersecurity, I don't know how, this is a great place to do that, these sorts of things that we're running. And um, but like you say, if it's if it's quite you're getting a lot of resistance in your own mind from what you're coming up against. Maybe that factor is it for you, or maybe is there a different part of cybersecurity you can look at? Yeah, it's not all the same, maybe. You know. Well, you said it's something interesting. The expression "pay it back," and I hear people say "pay it forward" and getting people into cyber. I'm not here to do any of those things. I'm not here to get people into cyber. I'm here. I'm here to get people what they want, and to get what they want, they have to understand what they want. They have to know what they want. And they have, that's a continual process. We all go through, we never stop doing it. Requirements. <laughs> requirements is the thing. In, in recruiting and staffing, requirements, that's the hardest part most of the time. Like, okay, client, what do you want? 
I need an AWS guy. I'm like, mm, more please. Why do you need an AWS guy? When do you need them? What's the business driver behind this? Is that deal really going to happen? Why, you know, all these questions about requirements that we 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 struggle to elicit from, from clients. Candidates are going through the same thing, right? And we sit at the intersection between of between one set of confused people and another set of confused people <laughs> and wait for them to sort it out. Um and sometimes I just feel like I'm the I'm the I'm the requirements whisperer. I'm just trying to figure out what people really want. Um, and you know, I've always felt like my sort of like my my business hacking takes the form of I got one problem, I have another problem. If I combine those problems, there's a solution inherent in that combination, the fusion of those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the solution to the candidate's problem is stop pursuing a cyber career great. If the solution to the client's problem is don't try and solve that with people, get better tech or get a better business process in place. If I can solve it that way and get it off my plate, right? And and see to their needs. Great. It's honest is all it is. And I'm not paying it forward and I'm not paying it back because I get paid right now every day by seeing people start to make their way toward what they really want, what's going to be good for themselves, their families, their communities. That's it. That's a really interesting take on it, actually. I never really sort of quite thought of it in that depth, I guess. And you spoke about a point there on um, the requirements coming through from job description, for example, and the briefing, and we want X, Y, and Z skills, yada, yada, yada. In your world, in in the the, the worlds I've recruited in which are less of the developing spaces, but is there a sort of job description doesn't necessarily meet what the job will be versus what the candidate can offer? And I'm interested to get your take on that specifically because you've you've been in those hiring manager shoes within the security world. So I wonder if you have a slightly different perspective on it. Uh, I definitely have a different perspective on it. I'm not sure I can really describe it adequately. I mean, job descriptions are are a horror show. Um, um, I don't... what, What a job description does is signal certain key requirements that people can read, right? And make a decision about whether they apply. But people don't read JDs, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I remember a few months ago, I saw somebody complain on LinkedIn that he'd, he'd apply for 2,000 jobs. And the conversation went a little further, and, I, and I, he, he, he bragged that he'd done so with a script. And he was complaining that no one got back to him. He still didn't have a job. I'm like, do you know, do, do you know that you've proven that the, uh, the blind application approach does not work? Like that's an excellent experiment. You wasted two thousand people's time, right? Because what what candidates are realized is that most of us read these resumes and these applications. We don't always read them through and through or in depth, but we read a lot of them that way. And like when I say the job is in Mexico and you must be in Mexico, and I get applications for people in the Philippines, and I have the same job, but in Philippines posted there, and they didn't apply to that one. Right, um, uh, it's a little frustrating, and it it's it gums up the entire business. Um, our whole industry, like from the hi- from the recruiting pers- recruiter's perspective, from the hiring manager's perspective, and the candidate's perspective, would be a lot healthier if people did pay attention to the job descriptions, but also didn't rely on them completely. I one of the reasons that I have the community, the reason I spend about half my time on it. Uh, and more than a little ga- a little cash, mm-hmm. is it gives me an opportunity to work with people, 
Mm. Right. So, you know, when people say, well, like, I really want to work with you. And how do I get a job through you guys or how to work for you? I'm like, come to my, come to these events, play a game, speak up, be on camera. Um, how do I network is another one. I'm like, uh, uh, help people. Networking is helping people. That's pretty much the whole thing. It's not getting, you know, uh, uh, play on your social media. It's not like having the maximum number of followers, right? I have a lot of followers. I promote my LinkedIn because I can use that to promote jobs, to, but mostly to promote, promote events, mm -hmm. right? So I can meet people. I can help people. Um, don't worry about them helping you back, right? Do it for the joy of it. Do it for love. You do it for love, good stuff happens. You do it for other reasons, eh, eh, maybe, but you should be, you're probably not going to enjoy it on the way. No, there's, there's that thing about just just giving. I think you're bang on there. If you if you're doing something with the intent of getting something back, short term or long term, I think people smell that mile, uh, and I think it shows, and then it doesn't sort of you know, work out as intended, perhaps. So, yeah, I, I definitely think there's an element of that. And with the tools that are available now to do the networking, you're right. It's not about having the most followers necessarily, or the biggest engagement all the time but with tools like linkedin or or, or twitter or, or quite yeah try hack me and hack the box and everything out there mm -hmm. it, it's built for built for connecting people and um, so yeah my, my biggest thing is just go ahead and do it and see what happens you know do connect with 10 people i bet you they'll help you, okay. you, yeah. people help you. Uh, so peter with all we've talked about here you've transferred from sort of working for for the, the machine or somebody or, or company to doing your own thing and doing it. We, we've spoken a lot about the staffing, but I know you've got the VC so and the consulting piece as well in there. On that journey, if somebody's out there thinking, you know what, I fancy doing a similar sort of thing, take take the staffing thing aside for a moment and maybe just looking at VC so or the, um, the the other consulting work around MDR you do. Is there things they should really really consider before getting into this world that maybe has been a learn for you along the way? Yeah, cash flow. You gotta have cash. Mm. Um, and it's it's and you're gonna need cash that you can uh that doesn't come with too many strings attached. Um that's that's important. Um because like the first four months of this thing, woof, no money, okay. 16, 18 hour days, seven days a week. There were days when there were a lot of days when I didn't know what day it was. Um, and my family suffered for it. Right. And my, you know, my wife was, she started doing like textile and mezcal tours for tourists. Right. She she'd never done that before. I sold off like a lot of musical equipment, like just to like pay rent. Um, um, and then, you know, the money started coming. It was good. I was, I was, I was really lucky, but I wasn't lucky. You know, I have a lot of friends and I had and it, like the selling part, uh, was, um, was not really about selling in the same way that I don't recruit. I make friends and I help people, mm -hmm. um, ha happens on the other side. And it turns out that by, um, um, donating our time to building the community here in order to make, uh, the, um, the sapping recruiting easier, people started to notice North, North of the Rio Bravo, right. Mm -hmm. And people started to come to us and say, um, I love what you're doing there. How can I help? Can, what can I buy from you? That's cool. Now, people didn't really even know what we did. They were just like, I love what you're doing. I want to support this. What can I buy? And um, and there wasn't always a, a fit, but I had referrals. I continue to have referrals that are really, really cool. Mm -hmm. um, all because we're just like, we're doing it the right way. 
or what I think is the right way. Now, will that work for everybody? I don't know. I mean, I have I have a lot of years of experience across a lot of places and um, people who want to want to pitch in because they believe that the greater mission, which is to to build relationships across that border, um, that that cuts Mexico off from the United States, um, that that finding ways through that is is important. I mean, the fact is like. I don't I don't deal with people who want to move to the United States. They want they want to be here. I live here by choice. It's a wonderful place to live mm. with incredible people. Um I don't think I'd ever want to live in the states again. And I've lived all over the states. I lived in Canada. There's something really special and beautiful about this place. And there are there are folks who 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 want to help. Mm. Um so part of it there's there's a, a thinly veiled political angle to this, which is like let's create Let's create some uh, relationships between people who are not supposed to get along. I don't get along just great. Who are, get along quite well. Yeah. Um, now, as for like, if you wanted to do this, like I, I like I said, I don't really have competition here. Mm. Um, would love to see somebody try, but here's the thing: um, this worked for us because it was completely natural. Mm. We're physically here. I'm in a, a, a sort of a, a biracial marriage. Um, bi-national, bicultural marriage. I have friends here. I have friends there. Um, um, and I have a long history in cyber. So I, I cart along with me all those relationships. If somebody else wanted to do it, they'd have to be here. They'd have to be in a similar position. But I think it could be done in places like, like Greece, Turkey. Um, you know, there are, there, there's some firms that try and do this in the Philippines. Like Trustwave is there. A lot mm-hmm. of a lot of people are very happy with trust trust wave service in in, uh, in the Philippines. There's some manufacturers, uh, cybersecurity um, uh, product manufacturers that have uh, set up shop in uh, in the Philippines and apparently treat people well. Um, the key though is like treat people like people. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one time I was interviewing a guy in um, somewhere in India. I think it was in, he was in Bangalore or Bengaluru. Actually, this is supposed to be called. And um, you know his 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 kid interrupted us, yeah. and he's like, I was like, oh, go. I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me talk to the kid. <laughs> <laughs> I put that put the headset on him, and he was, you know, I'm like, what's your name? I'm like, how old are you? I'm six. I'm like, and then we, um, you know, and the, his dad just beamed. He was so proud. And then, <laughs> and I told him, I went, you know, headphones go back to dad, and I'm like, you know, I got to tell you, like, you're just not qualified for this thing. Like, this is not, this is not, this would not work. Um, uh, and I give them the usual, you know, you can join our community. And then we started talking about composting because like, there's this rule in Oaxaca that came about because like the garbage men were on strike or garbage sanitation was on strike. I did a compost and, and, uh, and so he's like, oh, I have a garden. Let me show you my garden. He was on his phone. So he takes the phone outside and he shows me his garden. And, and at the end of it, um, he says, you know, nobody's ever talked to me like this. I mean, you mean like, like as a, like a person, he's like, yeah, nobody, nobody I've ever talked to in a job has ever talked to me like a human being. I'm like, um, yeah, I'm like, that's, and I, you know, and so we ended it and uh, we've talked a couple of times since, but the, the point is that, um, we, we operate in a system that wants to treat us like things. Mm, Very transactional. we're very transactional and all like, let's just get this over with and let's get it, move on to the next thing. And, um, 
I don't want to live that way. You know, I, I want to work like I want to live. I want to be, I want to be who I want to be. If I think I'm a good person, I should do what a good person would do. And I think a lot about that. And I've had similar experiences in other places. Like I'll do 15 minutes with anybody in the world. I'll take an appointment for 15 minutes for anyone who asks. I, I remember one time I was talking to this, this guy, he's, I think it was early 20s. It was in Benin, which I had to look up on a map. Apparently, if you don't know where Benin is, it's like right next, it's like on the Horn of Africa. It's on the coast right next to Nigeria. Okay. And he's a, he works for MTM, which is like the largest telco in Sub-Saharan Africa. And he was talking to me on his phone in his house and we're chit-chatting. And I'm like, so how do you, how do you do this? How do you learn? He's like, oh, I got a bunch of friends together and we pool our equipment and we pool like, you know, uh, uh, books and practice exams and we quiz each other and i'm like you just described a hackerspace a collective what i what i came up through which is linux user groups hmm. i'm like that's that's brilliant like people don't do that here this way like they actually get together and then as he's as we're he he's talking the power cuts out and you can see the lights go out and he just gets up and walks outside into the sunlight and keeps talking and i realized this guy just, he didn't miss a beat. He was yeah. completely unperturbed by this. And if I had people like this guy, like a hundred of him, mm. I could like conquer the world. Mm. And and I, I thought a lot about that conversation. I thought like if that guy should be making the same, the same money that somebody in Chicago should be making eventually. Right. Mm. And so there's there's a broader project of of like let's 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 flatten the global cybersecurity labor market over the next it'll take longer than i have left mm. but I, there's no reason that 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 young man in benin should not should be working for 20 bucks a day it's just completely unjust and and it's absurd mm. why doesn't he political corruption in benin um you know um racism shows up a lot right it's you know i don't worry about it here because I just don't get the phone calls from the companies who would have problems with Mexicans. I get calls from people who appreciate diversity and, and want to have uh, contact with people from around the world. So that's great. Like those are our people. Mm. I don't have to sell. I don't have to sell to them. What I have to do with them is help them convince others that this is a good bet on a business level, which it is. Mm. Right? There's there's there are lower costs. There are different kinds of talents. Right? Um, there's strengths that we have here that. Um, that you don't have the, the UK and Europe and the United States. Um, uh, and sure enough, like, you know, companies like Fortinet, their global service centers in Mexico City, F5, Monterey, SailPoint does a lot of their development in Mexico City. Okay. IBM has a major facility. Like, there are companies, like big companies that have invested in Mexico because they know, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so we're, we're, we're dealing with the companies that are in the, you know, the unfortunate 5,000, the ones below the Fortune 500. Mm. Um, and so we create opportunities for them to sort of expand their reach without having to get on, you know, 22 hour plane rides to Mumbai or Bangalore, uh, and in ways that are less disruptive because I don't have to be up in the middle of the night to talk to my Asia crew. I Great. don't have to, to deal with, uh, the difficulty that comes with, um, volatile and unpredictable labor and tax law right? yeah. Uh, yeah that's fair that's fair and, and i guess you you mentioned a couple of things there but what, what is the resistance to, to making this a truly global workforce whether it's benin or mexico or mm -hmm. 
uh, a lot of it is you is that um that i mean the united states is no stranger to corruption but the kinds of corruption varies by where you go right um and so um it's just harder um it's harder to to employ people directly in in play in some places impossible like there's no way to do business in ethiopia i would like to like there's great talent there can't do it just getting getting stuff and money in to pay people next to impossible okay. so some 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 countries are simply um uh, so broken in terms of legal regulatory labor uh laws and practices you just can't do it mexico is hard but we take care of it like that's our job right yeah. so we we shield our clients from all the the oddities that show up here yeah um yeah. but the other is like you these are all based on 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 trust in the united states like americans are very litigious i mean if you if you've done spent time in the united states you hear about it mm -hmm. uh um for example and actually this it's funny this is sort of a uh uh something similar to this is like cyber insurance apparently and i learned this not too long ago is not really a thing in say japan in most of okay. europe cyber insurance is not really a thing Really? It's, it's 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 much more prominent in the United States because Americans love to sue each other. Okay, and so um, that same kind of thing is is a is a factor that one has to consider in, in other regions. Now, so where do you do it? Where do you do business? Mexico, great. Philippines, terrific infrastructure. And when I say infrastructure, I mean legal, regulatory, labor. Um, India is rough. That's why you can only do it at scale. Um, uh, Anywhere in Europe is going to be different. It's going to be easier um, because of the maturity of, uh, of regulation. Um, the, the There's a myth that like European workers like don't want to work hard. It's not true. Mm -hmm. They just want to work. They want to be sane. <laughs> they're not. They're not. They're not addicted to overwork. Americans are addicted to overwork. They work harder than they need to. Then they produce less than they should because they work too hard. Um, <laughs> Um, but when you, when you, when you do business with places, uh, in places like this, what you find is a lot more gratitude mm -hmm. and, and the relationships that you can forge create a kind of resilience in the business that you don't get in Dallas or wherever it's less at first it's more transactional because you're not trusted, right? As a foreigner, you, there, you don't have the, the sort of home field advantage as it were, but you can develop that. And then, and then the, the uh the bonds that come from re respect treating people with dignity um with deference getting to know families getting to know like i mean not family no company's a family that's just bs right but there's something different that you can create in a business that some respects is more intimate than family um and so that can be a that can be a huge advantage yeah i say i say and i think we, we've touched on an awful lot of points there i I think there's a hell of a lot of value going into that uh, from anything from the offshoring, nearshoring piece through to getting into cybersecurity communities and everything in between. And I've learned insights from how people do it around the world that maybe others I know about and maybe they could replicate in, you know, places that have better infrastructures and less corruption and things like that. And for me, I'd say, okay, well, if people are doing it where there's countries and systems where there isn't the what I'm blessed with here, then there's no reason why I couldn't do it. So I, I think that could be a, a, a key learn for, for sure. And so 
next 12 months peter what are you excited about i'm i'm excited about capital getting unfrozen um everything you know, nothing gets canceled everything gets paused and so there's there's an awful lot of uh stuck deals pause deals things like that and we're using the time to just invest in training and we've had to get a lot more creative like we're, we're building um uh, a support team for one of the sassy vendors right cool. so we're and they're going to be in oaxaca and we're going to train people who are you know have some experience in it or come out of the out of the out of the universities that got technical training and we're going to put them to work. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really excited about that. Um, um, I'm excited about um, um, seeing what comes uh, from the, um, the withdrawal of the kind of overinvestment in cyber. Years ago, I had the, the fortune in, to um, bump into one of the original investors in Splunk at RSA. Okay. Wow. And I, I asked, I asked him, I'm like, we just, a, we just sat down at a bar. I'm just like, Hey, what do you do here? Like, what's your deal? What do you think of the conference? And he said, there is five times as much capital in this business as is healthy. I'm like, where do you get that idea? And he's like, he's like, well, let me tell you where I came from. And I, I think he was right. Um, th there's so much money that nobody knew how to manage it. Mm -hmm. And so people, we're not as creative as they should have been. People are not as um, willing to learn how to do more with less. This is one of the, going back to the advantage of Mexico, people know how to squeeze a peso or a dollar here. Um, me, if I have a choice between um, the con a conventional approach, which involves a pile of money to invest and less and being able to and not being sort of beholden to investment i will take the latter every time hmm. um because scarcity actually forces us to to to, to invent mm -hmm. and invention is what business should be all about uh, not just running a formula over and over again yes there can be more risk but we learn how to hedge right um but um, in the end and i think i'll end this way uh if you want to do this you better damn well be a business hacker you have to want to understand this, how the system works, and understand how it works in ways that other couldn't, other people couldn't see. The essence of, of of hacking is is a burning desire to see behind the scenes, to understand the things that other people think they understand but do not, and then use it to the benefit of people. Right? That's that's all we do. We're just business hackers here. That's awesome, man. Well, no, thank you so much for, for sharing that. And uh, if people want to reach out, want to get in touch, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also find me at peter at nearshorecyber.com.mx. .mx. Love it. Okay, cool. Well, thank you again for sharing all that. I really appreciate diving into all sorts of different things in your background, what you're doing now. Hopefully uh, the listeners did too. And uh, uh, we'll uh, speak again soon. Thank you, James. It's always a pleasure.